He was the 41st president of the United States and the patriarch of one of the most storied political families. Today, we are looking back at the life and legacy of President George H.W. Bush, who died late last night in Houston, Texas. Ann Compton covered 41 as a White House correspondent for ABC News, and she joins us live now uh, to talk about the president. And you covered the uh, president for the entire pres- his entire presidency. And what really stuck with you about his style of leadership? I did. I covered him going way back to uh, years before in other jobs that he had had in uh, in, in Washington, uh, the uh, all over the world. You know, George Bush is remembered now fondly in history's rearview mirror um, because of his character, the kinder, gentler, most gracious uh, kind of uh, way that people remember how he treated others, but. When I look back at particularly the 1980s, you have to think how critical those years were. And four years of American foreign policy where the Middle East was a tinderbox, and he'd been a U.N. ambassador, he'd been head of the CIA, Uh, the rise of China, he had been America's first ambassador there, and, of course, the fall of the Berlin Wall, his very first year in office, he had been vice president and knew that the Western, Eastern Europe, needed help to take over uh, democratic values after the fall of the Berlin Wall. So he came to office with extraordinary foreign policy credentials. And as a member of the press corps, you really got to know the commander-in-chief. Are there any personal memories which really stick with you, especially as you uh, reminisce today? Oh, oh yes. Uh, um, he, you know, he didn't um, always trust the press. He certainly didn't like a lot of the coverage he got. But there was a, a there was a good natured relationship with him because he understood that back in those days where the technology was, uh, the only way he could reach the American people was through the mainstream media, even directly addressing the American people from that Oval Office desk, which he had to do on very serious moments like the the launching of the Persian Gulf War. He still depended on the national media to get his message across. And on a one-to-one basis, he was very kind, even to some of the reporters who drove him crazy. All right. And I know I was reading the article you did for ABC News, and you talked at one point where he got a little short with you, but then he apologized. Well, here is what's extraordinary as we stand in the 2016, 17, 18, where the press is vilified and called enemy of the American people. President Bush had rushed back to the White House after Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, and he was determined to lead an international effort. And out on the White House lawn, I asked him something about uh, about what was developing, and he kind of snapped at me, and I was stunned. I'd never heard him snap at anybody before. The next day, before he announced he would send military troops into the desert to fight Saddam, I was called up to the outside the Oval Office and handed a personal letter from him. It said, it's personal, underlined twice on the outside. And he apologized and said he wasn't, he hoped that he might, his answer wasn't offensive to me. And he signed it with his initials and a happy face wearing a frown. Can you imagine that kind of response to the press in the current era? Wow. And looking back now, his family. You saw how important his family was to him. Can you describe that from your vantage point of covering the president? Uh, when I first met George 
Herbert Walker Bush. He was uh, it was the night before he announced he was running for president in 1980. And he um, he invited me to the hotel suite where his whole family was. It was clear that those five kids of his and his wife were the center of he, center of his universe and he was the center of that family and that kind of devotion and loyalty we saw all those years and what people forget is when he lost re-election four years later he was carrying the burden of a recession that had ended but it happened on his watch uh he wasn't as adept a campaigner that second time around but remember he lost to Bill Clinton, who got credit for being kind of a new generation president. But he also lost an election. It was George Bush and Bill Clinton and Ross Perot, the independent, who got almost 20 million votes. George Bush always felt that he probably, without Perot in the race, probably would have won. So uh, I think that that moment of sadness for him and the idea he did not get a second four years uh, was something that was always painful, but he forgave everyone. He always did. All right, Ann, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. That's Ann Compton, who covered all four years of the George H.W. Bush administration for ABC News. The longest-lived president in American history, George H.W. Bush, died Friday at 94, and the tributes continue, including from the man who currently occupies the Oval Office. Uncle and I were just talking about it. He was a wonderful man. President Trump at the G20 summit alongside German Chancellor Angela Merkel. He said he called George W. Bush and Jeb Bush to express his condolences. He also canceled a scheduled news conference until after the funeral. As for those funeral plans? In the coming days, world leaders, government figures, and thousands of Bush family friends will file past the casket of George H.W. Bush beneath the rotunda of the U.S. Capitol before a state funeral at the National Cathedral. But Mr. Bush himself requested that his body be brought back to his adopted hometown of Houston for a 100-mile train trip to College Station. Mr. Bush will be buried alongside his wife and his daughter at his presidential library at Texas A&M University. Jim Ryan, ABC News, Dallas. Brian Clark, ABC News. It is 1232, and let's talk more about the life and legacy of President George H.W. Bush with CBS News Chief White House Correspondent Major Garrett. Major, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you. Welcome uh, to Buenos Aires, where I'm covering the G20 and President Trump. All right. Well, thank you for taking some time to talk to us. Obviously, uh, this this story, you covered um, the former president from the vantage point of Congress and would love to give to your, your insight and your thoughts on how that worked and how he reached across the aisle, it seemed, to work uh, with both parties. So that's when I was starting my career in Washington, covering Congress in the early 1990s. And what was noticeable then and remarkable in retrospect now is how eagerly George H.W. Bush considered not only the obligation, but the opportunity of bipartisanship. He had an entrenched Democratic House and Senate and nevertheless achieved things that, looking back on it now, are significant in their own right. Reauthorization of the Clean Air Act, reauthorization of the Civil Rights Act, passing the Americans with Disability Act, and putting together a budget that, yes, raised taxes, hugely damaging to him politically, but also requiring spending cuts of the kind Democrats did not want to make, and that every president since has looked back on as a springboard for prosperity. One other aspect of that part of George H.W. Bush's political life, 1992, weakened in the Republican primary by whom? Pat Buchanan. What was his message? Economic nationalism and a hard, hard-edged approach to immigration. 
You look at Pat Buchanan's message, it's not very far removed from Donald Trump's message in 2016 and his presidency now. So in your mind, he's spawned in a new era of politics. Yes, because when George H.W. Bush agreed to raise taxes, going back on his famous Republican National Convention pledge, read my lips, no new taxes, there was a decided split in Republican ranks. And establishment Republicans who cared about budget deficits began to shrink away. And hard-edged, no-new-tax Republicans of the kind, first led by Newt Gingrich and then uh, given voice to by the Tea Party and the like, have now dominated congressional Republican ranks and Republican orthodoxy. And that's also a transition. And this idea that bipartisanship is a good thing has faded away. We give lots of lip service to us now. Washington does. But it's hard work. And George H.W. Bush put the hard work together and took the political risks to achieve it because he organically believed it was an obligation of the presidency. And for your coverage, any personal memories that really stick with you on your interactions and your covering of the president? I would just say that I got to know the legislative affairs staff of the Bush White House really well because I was covering Congress and some of the most enduring professional and personal relationships I've ever forged in Washington started back then when I was very young and people were much more experienced and took a couple of moments to help educate a wet-behind-the-ears, enthusiastic, but kind of know-nothing reporter. And I will always cherish both what I didn't know then, what I learned at the foot of those who worked in the Bush White House, and the idea of watching a Congress and a presidency work through hard issues but get results, even though in the moment they weren't nearly as appreciated as they were viewed from the retrospect of history. That's oftentimes what works best in America. And finally, from your vantage point, what's the legacy of President George H.W. Bush? Well, I've talked a lot about domestic policy, but you simply cannot overlook the important management of a turbulent time in world history, the end of the Cold War and what to do in the aftermath. And just here, moments ago, in Buenos Aires, Angela Merkel said George H.W. Bush is one of the fathers of German reunification. Looking back on it now, we all think, oh, that was so easy. It was naturally going to happen. No, it wasn't. And there were a lot of interested parties that created the atmospherics around the reunification of Germany to give it the space and the time to make it happen. George H.W. Bush was one of those figures. So as a transitional figure from Cold War to post-Cold War, probably no one was better equipped or better experienced to deal with that time. Again, something not as valued in the moment, as it is as we look back on it now. Major, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. All right. CBS News Chief White House Correspondent Major Garrett joining us here on WTO Peace. President Donald Trump and the First Lady Melania Trump are mourning the passing of former President George H.W. Bush in a statement. They remember the president as a man of sound judgment, common sense, and unflappable leadership. The White House announced today that the Trumps would attend the state funeral of the former president at the Washington National Cathedral later on this week. Former President George H.W. Bush lived a unique life of public service that historian Doris Kearns Goodwin suggests seals his place in U.S. history. I asked her how history remembers our 41st president. I think the most important thing to think about history judging President Bush 41 is not so much only what he did during his presidency, where history will give him high marks in foreign policy, perhaps make a note of the fact that he didn't win the second election, talk about his strengths, talk about his weaknesses, 
But the most important thing I, is to judge him as a man and as a public servant. I mean, just think of it. Naval aviator, war hero, congressman, ambassador to UN, envoy to China, head of CIA, vice president and president. I think at a time when political experience has been considered a liability, it's important to remember how honorable a long career he had. And, you know, what interests me is that Teddy Roosevelt was asked one time, while he was still alive, obviously, about his place in history, and he said, it matters less to me how I'll be remembered years from now. What matters is that when I leave, I want to feel I played my part honestly and well, that those who knew me and cared for me and my descendants will feel that, that I've been a straight and decent man who did good service. So think of that. That verdict of history is already made about George Bush, and I think he should feel good knowing that as he went out. President Bush was a prolific letter writer, I understand. Do we know much about who he wrote to and what those letters were like, and were they about all kinds of different things? Do you know much about those? Well, I've read his book, All the Best, and I love it. I mean, he's so honest in these letters. Right after he lost the election to President Clinton, he wrote, it hurts, it hurts, it hurts. I wanted to finish the job, and it's not finished, and I feel so bad for all the people who supported me. I've let them down but I'll finish with a smile and some gusto. So, I mean, and then there's a wonderful letter that he writes to his mother. He's 18-year-old, right? He says, kissing is not an obligation. A girl owes a boy, regardless of how often he takes her out or how much money he spends. I'd hate to find that my wife had known some other man, and it seems to me only fair to her that she be able to expect the same standards from me. So they're just so honest. They're fun. They are the way he speaks. You know, he talked about the fact that he was upset with the way he was covered by the media, but he wanted people to know in the end that even if he felt that he'd been criticized too much, that he stood for the right things, for duty, honor, and country. He wrote that to one of his sons. So that's not all bad, he said, and I would say that's pretty good. Let's talk a little bit about some of those things where he was misunderstood. I mean, you know, a lot of people said that he was too blue blood. He didn't understand the common person. I guess, is it fair to say that in reality that he actually did really care about people, even though maybe he didn't connect wholly to middle class Americans? Or is that unfair? No, I think what you said is right. I think there's no question when you hear anybody who knew him talking about him that he had empathy for those other people. I mean, I remember hearing a story that Somebody, an engineer in his office, had done something wrong with a teleprompter and it made him screw up, and he yelled at the person for a moment. And then he went back to the person and he said, I shouldn't have done that. The dignity of the presidency says I shouldn't have treated you that way. I think he just didn't know how to communicate well in terms of how to explain things to the American people, which is one of the most important jobs a presidency can have. But I think it's not fair to say he didn't feel empathy. He just was awkward in the way he expressed it. And it obviously hurt him during that election because the recession had already set in. People were hurting. And he needed to just connect to them in a way that obviously Clinton was able to. And I think that will always be a part of why he didn't win that election. But it's also possible if Ross Perot hadn't been in there, he would have won and we wouldn't be talking about that. So there's a luck of the dice sometimes. President Clinton released the letter that President Bush wrote him as he was leaving office. And one of the things he said was, the minute you walk into this room, you'll be president. And you should know that I'm rooting for you maybe more than anybody, because if you succeed, we all succeed. So that says a lot about humility and and that President Bush was America first, I guess. I don't know if that's the right phrase. but Absolutely. I mean, at a moment, so again, he's leaving the office. He didn't want to leave. He wanted to finish the job. But he's saying to the next president that you will be president by the time you read this letter. And I'm rooting for you because this is what's good for America, and we're all rooting for you. I mean, I think that was his ability to put service 
to country above ambition for self, even at a moment when he was hurting himself. Is there something about the president, Mr. Bush, that Americans maybe miss about something that he did that now impacts our country, our economy, our lives, that people just don't necessarily connect back to him? Well, I think probably domestically, you know, until they now list the various accomplishments, American Disabilities Act, anybody who's been benefiting from that, which must be hundreds and thousands of people, will know that that goes back to George Bush, as does the Clean Air Act. But I suppose most importantly, it's hard to know what it would have been like if we had a different president dealing with the fall of the Soviet Union and the collapse of the Berlin Wall. That's where his humility and his ability to get Gorbachev to trust him and not sticking it to them and having some great triumph that this happened, it may have created the alliances and the ease with which the Eastern European countries got their freedom that we may not have understood quite at the time. But looking back now at those alliances and how he dealt with you know, the complications of foreign policy will be remembered, I think, many, many years from now. That's presidential historian Doris Kearns Goodwin.